Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin this episode, I wanted to apologize for the lengthy delay that there's been between this episode and the last. I've been obsessed for the last few months in finishing my latest book called Early 20th Century Algonquin Cottage Cookery that should be available on Amazon in about a month. It's part culinary history, part family story, and part cookbook, and is a whimsical stroll through the recipe box of Canoe Lake's Jean Bertram Peary from 1890 to 1940. It includes over 300 recipes, ready to be created in your home or cottage kitchen, and hopefully a fun addition to your upcoming summer adventures. I wanted to remind everyone that all of my books, as well as those by my friend and fellow Algonquin Park human historian, Roderick Mackay, are all available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and at Amazon. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, on the Pics and Vids page, I've posted selections from my library of historical photographs of people and places that I talk about in these podcasts, which I hope you will find of interest. As I mentioned before, I also strongly encourage everyone to lend their financial support to the Wildlife Research Station, whose information can be found on their website, www.algonquinwrs.ca. And consider buying an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt, coffee cup, or other merch by clicking on the Gifts and Gears buttons on my website. If you have any ideas of topics that you think would be fun to explore or just want to share your sentiments about my podcasting efforts, please feel free to email me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. As you may recall from episode 31, one of three on the history of the Wildlife Research Station Amphibian research has occurred periodically in Algonquin Park since the mid-1980s. In 2008, a continuous study of the salamander population was initiated and led by Glenn Tattersall from the Brock University that is still very active. Now salamanders are interesting because one rarely sees them. They prefer to live under rotting leaves and logs in the summer and then in winter they burrow underground. But it turns out that in certain locations in Algonquin Park, there are huge numbers of them. Some in the order of 30,000 per hectare, which in my brain amounts to about 12,000 per acre. In addition, salamanders are also the canaries in the coal mine as it relates to climate change, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So I'm really pleased to welcome today Patrick Muldowan from the University of Toronto School of the Environment and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, who has just successfully defended his PhD thesis on ecology and sensitivity to environmental change of a northern population of spotted salamander. Now, for those unaware, Patrick is a devoted, lifelong interpretive naturalist with a special interest in salamanders and turtles. In 2015, he was named Canada's 26th New Noah by Wildlife Preservation Canada and received a scholarship to spend six months with the Dural Trust on Mauritius Island to apprentice in practical recovery strategies for the island's endangered endemic wildlife. 
He's also led eco-tours to the Yukon and Alaska and the Galapagos Islands through Worldwide Quest, a company that's been offering travel tours to unique locations since 1970. Patrick is also the board chair for the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station. Patrick, welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments. So exciting to have you here chatting today. We had corresponded and communicated a lot when I was doing the Wildlife Research Station series last year, and so it's wonderful to be able to talk about salamanders, which uh, I believe is one of your favorite topics, right? You bet. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for having me. And yeah, although salamanders are mostly out of sight and therefore out of mind, uh, I think that there's a lot of really interesting stories that they can tell. So I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, maybe the best place to start for our audience would be for you to share a little bit about how you even got interested in the spotted salamander in the first place. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think a lot of young naturalists can can relate to this, and park goers more generally. Um, you know, I've been I've been fascinated by all things that creep and crawl and slither and slime since I was really young, and I'd spend a lot of my misguided youth riding out into the countryside and flipping logs, searching for uh, insects and salamanders. Uh, and it was really quite fortuitous that I, I found myself in Algonquin uh, with the spotted salamanders. And, and that was because as a secondary school student who uh, was living and working in the Niagara region, I met a professor that would come into the pet store where I was working uh, and he would buy insects to feed to the lizards that he was maintaining in his lab for study. And uh, that professor is Dr. Glenn Tattersall from Brock University. And when I went off to post-secondary, uh, we kept in touch and he would subsequently offer me a position studying the spotted salamander in Algonquin Park. So from age 17 onward, I was absolutely hooked on these fascinating uh, little salamanders and, uh, and of course, Algonquin Park too. Wow, wow, interesting. So. Where I am in the United States right now, there's been lots of research about amphibians and how they're being affected by climate change and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I'm interested in your sense on, you know, why are salamanders so important for the ecosystem? <laughs> yes, salamanders, as I said at the opening, are, are mostly out of sight. Uh, and so we don't think about them, you know, unlike frogs, uh, which call and are, are quite a bit more conspicuous in our wetlands. Salamanders are, are smaller in general. Uh, they're more discreet and, and they really keep to themselves. And so we don't think of them often, but be, because they're, they're small, they, they are often overlooked, but they can be remarkably abundant in intact forest and wetland ecosystems, especially in Eastern North America. And this biomass, that is the, the amount of living tissue mass that salamanders compose can rival that of a lot of other animals in the forest. For anybody who's looked at the cover of the Bat Lake Trail Guide, you can see these animals, different animals, scaled relative to their biomass on the landscape. And although we think of you know salamanders as being very tiny, the salamander on the front cover of the Bat Lake Trail Guide looks like an absolute Godzilla. It's towering over the bears and the wolves and the moose. Uh, so it's not to say that the, the bears and the wolves and the moose, of course, are not important, but salamanders, by their sheer abundance, make up a really important part of our, our ecosystem. 
So they contribute to soil dynamics, overall the health and well-being and cycling of nutrients in our soils, which of course in terms helps plants and other wildlife. Because they live their life between water and land, they cycle nutrients between fresh waters and land. So if, if you like clean, fresh waters and healthy aquatic ecosystems, you can thank a salamander. Really? <laughs> yeah. And if nothing else, um, salamanders can form a really important metric of ecosystem health and well-being. So frogs like salamanders have been used a lot to gauge the health of our ecosystems. And it's largely because they have porous skin that is sensitive to pollutants and other contaminants in our environment. And they're often quite specific to the quality of, of habitat, you know, having overhead story and tree cover and suitable underground and ground level plant cover and, and soil quality. And so all of these aspects of the natural world that come to support life is often can be measured really well through amphibian abundance and population health. And for that reason, Salamander assessment, you know, in Ontario, in the eastern United States, and, and many other areas of the world can be really useful. Their modern day canary in the coal mine for assessing ecological health and the threats that we face from climatic change and, and habitat destruction. Interesting. So, uh, you know, at my cottage that I used to have on Canoe Lake, I used to see them every once in a while, but mostly, as you say, when I turned over a log, they would show up. But I can't imagine that they're everywhere in Algonquin, right? There must be just certain places where they congregate, where you get these masses that you're talking about. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the environments that make them want to congregate in such a way that there's enough of them that you could actually study in that sense? Yeah, so so salamanders truly are spread far and wide on the landscape. In fact, estimates from forest habitats across East Eastern North America, are typically such that there is one or several salamanders for every square meter of ground. The, the truth is, is that it's just really a matter of knowing when and when to look for them, uh, especially in the very early springtime is when you find them out in, in great abundance. But, but you're right, they can be incredibly spatially clustered and, and the main limitation that they face tends to be the accessibility of breeding habitat. And so fishless uh, lakes or ponds are a really uh, major bonus for breeding amphibian populations. And, and this is because fish are major predators of amphibian eggs and amphibian larvae, the sort of tadpole-like creatures we tend to associate with the early life stage of, of frogs and salamanders. And so for that reason, a lot of amphibians are really dependent on a landscape feature called vernal pools or ephemeral pools. These are temporary meltwater ponds that form in the springtime when snow melts and spring rains arrive. And these are amazing habitats for amphibians because they don't support fish. Of course, being temporary, these ponds end up drying up by later in the summer, but they're around for just long enough that the salamanders can breed, they can lay their eggs, those eggs can hatch, they can go through their larval or tadpole stage, and then they leave the ponds and occupy the forest to return in coming years. And but, that's like um, a five or six week period or a couple months or what? What? Yeah, usually closer to, to several months. Um, say in somewhere like Algonquin, it would run from about late April into late July or early August, about a 
you know, about a nine to 12 week period or so of, of water retention in some of these ponds. So, so yeah, fishless ponds are, are great places because they really boost and support huge amphibian populations. And so although, although salamanders are spread far and wide on the landscape, the truth is they, they can be especially concentrated around sites that, uh, that have either very uh, low numbers of predatory fish or where predatory fish are absent altogether. Hmm. So what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that once you find a place like that, you can count on the fact that every spring within a certain window, there will be this migration to the pond, stuff will happen in the pond, and then they'll migrate back. So sounds like that makes a decent place for research, because you don't have to find a new place every year, right? Absolutely. Just as you said, every spring, like clockwork, timed really well with thaw. For about a two to four week period, there's an epic migration that takes place with these animals. You know, we tend to think of amazing migrations like wildebeest across the Serengeti Plains or or neotropical birds coming back from the tropics to occupy the wonderful boreal edge forests of, of Algonquin Park. But here, you know, right in our own backyards happening on a little bit more of a micro scale, we have these amazing amphibian migrations, you know, when these animals legs are only a centimeter long, and they're stumbling over pine cones and going through tree roots and so on to get to these ponds. It's, it's really migration that's epic, but just on a slightly different spatial scale. So just just as you said, they undergo big big movements they congregate you know a lot of this activity is happening at night uh, a five or six degree night of pouring rain in the early spring while the ground is thawing is exactly when these amphibians want to move and it's exactly when most people want to stay indoors so the reason we don't see these amphibians on the move most of the time is because we're not out at midnight at six degrees and pouring rain in a late april or early may evening but if you were, you would be pleasantly surprised by how alive the forest is with salamander activity. Wow. So, okay, so I'm trying to get my head around this. We got a creature that's what, maybe the size of my, one of my fingers, the length of one of my fingers at best. And there's thousands of them. And mm -hmm. you're a researcher that wanders out in the middle of the night to go and what <laughs> i mean how do you catch them and how do you how do you study them <laughs> yeah well because of their likeness in general body form to lizards a lot of people associate you know salamanders as, as looking like lizards they have a head a body a long tail four legs um which by, by the way is not true of all lizards nor salamanders but but that <laughs> that general body form applies and uh yeah the the salamanders go about their activities but they're quite they're quite slow moving so they're not like a lizard in the tropics that'll run away from you or up a tree when you get close the salamanders are are sort of slow and plodding maybe a little more calculated in their in their moves and so when you come upon them you can really get close and take time to appreciate them you can get down on their level you can crouch you can lay on the sopping ground uh, and and truly get immersed in their world which i, I think is that is quite fascinating about them. So yeah, to, to your point, what, what can you do when you encounter them? Well, you know, if, if you don't want to be particularly invasive, you can uh, you can just enjoy them. And, and as amazing a, a sight as it is, having gone on for countless eons, these, these amphibians making these overland journeys to ponds and, and carry out their life cycle. Um, but from my perspective as a naturalist scientist, 
I often end up getting getting my hands on them in one one way or another, and of course respectfully and, and with their best interests in mind. But yeah, we're we're really interested in their biology. You know, we have a lot of really basic questions about these animals that are simply unanswered. For example, you know, how how long do they live, and what do they do with most of their life outside the breeding season? We know there's that two to four week window in the early spring when they come above ground and they make their way to water and they breed, but then they go underground and they live in burrows of small mammals. And so there's a lot that we, we don't know. Of course, they have a really complex life cycle. They, they go into the water, they lay their eggs, those, those eggs and their larvae develop, they, they come back out uh, towards the autumn. That complex life cycle has a lot of interesting aspects to it too, in which the salamanders are important predators, they're important prey, they can structure a lot of uh, dynamics among different organisms living in these wetland ecosystems. And again, that role with, with nutrient cycling, like we discussed earlier. So it's everything from understanding the size and the makeup of populations, you know, we're interested in how many salamanders there are, how that changes or doesn't change through time. We're interested in the sex ratio of the population, since that can often tell us a lot about population health. We're interested in where the salamanders are, and importantly, are not. Uh, you know, these sorts of things are all really what boil down to be called vital rates, population vital rates. And by knowing these different components of a population, and especially tracking how they change or don't change through time, it can tell us a lot about what's happening uh, in our natural world, including the overall health and viability of our ecosystems. Hmm. So I think it's time for a little musical interlude. This selection is called Marshlands, and it's from Dan Gibson's Solitude's Algonquin Suite CD.
So how do you actually catch them? <laughs> yeah, so salamander catching is is surprisingly easy. If you catch them moving over land, you can quite literally kneel down and, and pick one up. They're really quite inoffensive creatures. They don't bite and they don't hiss. They will squirm an awful lot and they do have sticky uh, substances and poisons that they can exude from their skin. So you want to be respectful and, and careful with them in that way as, as you would with any wild animal. But we do have have some more tried and true capture techniques we use uh, once they're in the water for example we use aquatic traps uh, funnel traps some people may also know them as as minnow trap and what's fascinating is we don't actually put any bait in these traps you know for a lot of wildlife research uh, you'd think that it requires putting food in the traps but these salamanders don't feed in the spring when they're breeding, they have just one thing on their mind. And that one thing is to find mates. And so uh, it's quite wild to think, but these salamanders are not freeze tolerant. So they would have had to have headed underground in the late autumn when things start to freeze up in Algonquin Park, when we get uh, hard frost and the surface layer of soil begins to freeze. These salamanders are deep, cozy underground in these small mammal burrows. And from that time onward, usually about a six-month period of time, they are locked underground and we have no idea what they're doing, but we're fairly confident they are not eating and they're not especially active. And finally, when the thaw of spring comes and they're released from their underground frozen tomb of sorts, they make their way overland, crossing these patches of ice and snow to breed in these ponds, but they haven't eaten in six months. And yet we can still put traps in the water and, uh, and catch them. And especially when females get into traps, those usually attract a lot of males. The males can detect the pheromones of the females. And so they get drawn in as well. So these aquatic traps can be highly effective if you know when and, and where to set them. Uh, and, and they're a great strategy for inventorying uh, salamander populations, or, or at least they can be, depending on the size of the wetland and its complexity. Hmm. Now, I read also about another mechanism where you dig a trench and then you see how many fall into the trench. Is that is it one that you guys use, too, in your research? Yeah, you're right. So that that research technique is called a drift fence, and it's combined uh, with, with something that's called a pit fall trap. So just as you mentioned, you can dig a shallow trench in the ground and install a type of uh, a barrier fencing meant to intercept an animal traveling between point A and point B. And because these salamanders follow pretty predictable routes from their upland overwintering habitat in the forest to their lowland aquatic habitat where they breed, if you put some type of barrier up between them, you can intercept them. And as long as you're monitoring that barrier on a really regular basis for, for animal welfare reasons and to ensure the timely travel of these animals, it means that you can count and inventory and identify the sex and the health and so on of these animals and then release them and let them continue on their way. And the pitfall traps are essentially a countersunk bucket or an old coffee can, or you can even use funnel traps on land that help funnel the animals in once they've encountered the fence, temporarily hold them so that they stay safe. And then as scientists, we can come along, open up these traps, take a look at what's inside, count and process the animals before releasing them again so they can go on their way. Wow, that's really neat. One other revelation that I that was new to me was that they're like snowflakes. No two are the same. 
and that that you've actually created this online inventory of the pictures or dimensions or whatever that you can tell whether you caught one before. Yeah, so I think a lot of your listeners uh, are certainly familiar with wildlife studies in the sense that if you see a moose in Algonquin or a bear, or if you're fortunate enough to see a wolf, you know, you might see something like a radio collar on, on the neck of the wildlife or maybe even an ear tag. Uh, if people who are avid bird watchers will be familiar with color bands, especially on the Canada Jays of Algonquin. Well, it's a little bit harder to mark a salamander, right? We, we can't go putting a bulky radio collar on them and their short legs <laughs> aren't really supportive of putting any kind of color band on there. And so what we do instead is we take advantage of the natural color uh, and pattern that these animals have to uh, essentially have them be individually marked and tractable. Just as you described for snowflakes, each, you know, each one being unique, the same is true of that brilliant polka dotted pattern on the spotted salamanders. So if your listeners haven't seen a spotted salamander before and they, they would decide to look one up online, you can even, you know, eye this up for yourself. If you look up spotted salamander and take a look online, you can see that at first glance, that yellow polka dot pattern seems to be pretty consistent. But in fact, the position of those dots, the way they align relative to each other, the number of dots, their hue, really changes from individual to individual. And so in fact, in our online inventory by studying salamanders in the wildlife research area of Algonquin, we have quote unquote marked over 3,000 individuals that we are now tracking through time to assess their survival, their abundance, their return rates to breeding sites. And by marking them, of course, what I mean is that we have digitally photographed these individuals that we've captured, uh, we've released them, and then we've logged those photographs in our database. And this database allows us to track individuals based on that spot pattern. So when we re-encounter them and, and take photographs, which we affectionately call their, their mug shots, um, when, when we can track their mug shots and compare them against each other, we can see that indeed, you know, a salamander, for instance, that we caught in 2009, we may be recaptured in 2010, again in 2015, again in 2017. And this allows us to truly track these animals on an individual basis. So you can actually see the patterns over time, right? What What's the That's recapture right. rate? I mean, it, I mean, I'm assuming you do statistics, right, to tell how many you refine. But how's that? How often does that happen? Absolutely. So, as you mentioned, this is this is becoming a longitudinal study now. So we have about a 15-year data set, which is allowing us the opportunity to really leverage all the data we've collected about the salamanders to date. And so, over about an 11-year subset of our period, about 75% of the males that we captured, we've only ever seen once. And over that same period, about 95% of females have only shown up once as well. Now, at face value, this suggests you know, really low recapture rates. We're not seeing the same individuals come back again and again and again. But the truth is, is that uh, what, it, what seems to be occurring is a lot of these animals are actually skipping reproduction. And so rather than, rather than say, dying... Um, which is a reason why you might not ever see an individual again. Another reason you might not see them is if they don't return to the breeding site. We know from studies elsewhere that these salamanders tend to be really 
uh, demonstrate really high fidelity to the breeding site. So the likelihood they're going elsewhere is low. But what happens is, is because reproduction, it takes so much out of them. It's such a huge energetic investment is that many individuals don't actually come back year to year. They might come back every second year or every third year. So that greatly reduces our chances that we're going to encounter them. And this seems especially true of females. They put a lot of energy into breeding each year and they take a lot of risks to do it. They're crossing over snow, there's risk of predators, there's risk of freezing and other uh, other threats. And so they tend to skip reproductive years. And so we're, we're really trying to get on top of this now underpins a lot of really important aspects of this population vital rates. Wow, that's amazing. So you've been studying salamanders for at least a decade or more. Could you share with us some of the basics that you've learned so far? Yeah, so there are a lot of really surprising things about salamanders that come to light, uh, even in just a couple years of studying them. The, the first, I think, the, yeah, the first thing that people find most surprising when I get talking about salamanders is how long they live. Uh, a lot of a lot of folks tend to think that small animals necessarily means short-lived, and and that's true of a lot of rodents, for instance. You know, you're, you're lucky if you're a, a mouse or a vole or a shrew, and you live two, three, four years maybe. But salamanders, being a pretty small organism, live life in the slow lane. Uh, I kind of hinted at this when I mentioned they're skipping reproductive bouts and, and so on. But yeah, salamanders, by living life in the slow lane, it, it means that they can really extend their life out. So we have some salamanders in our, our study that we know are at least 14 years old. And we also have some salamander research elsewhere suggesting that upwards of 30 years is certainly possible for a spotted salamander lifespan in the wild. So wow. they are uh, they are long lived, and for that reason, you know they cr they create a lot of stability in ecosystems, and that again goes back to their ecosystem role and function by being slow growing, long lived, but also highly abundant in a lot of ecosystems. Salamanders really are like an anchor uh, in keeping keeping ecosystems stable. Um, I think another really really surprising thing uh, about salamanders, and something that's that's really really interesting is their tolerance to the environment. We talked a little bit earlier at the opening how they can be really important sentinels for environmental change. So salamanders and other amphibian research really came to the forefront in the 1970s through the early 1990s with lots of concerns about uh, acid precipitation from industry. Algonquin Provincial Park, sitting on a lot of Canadian shield rock, um, is highly susceptible to, to acid precipitation or acid rain. A lot of the lakes, there's grave concern from the 70s to the 90s about how industry risked polluting and, and acidifying the lakes. Well, in some Algonquin lakes, there is a really high levels of natural acidity. And in fact, we see salamanders breeding in some of these sites where we would not expect it at all, because there's lots of literature to suggest that these salamanders should be really sensitive to acidic conditions. But yet there are some sites where they're breeding in huge abundances where it's quite acidic. And so what seems to be happening is evolution. Uh, we're seeing local adaptation to these highly acidic conditions of these ponds. So although it's probably quite stressful for the animals to be interacting with this type of water chemistry that's that's acidic and, and probably quite uh, hard on their skin, on the other hand, 
some of these sites are fish-free because they're so acidic. And so the amphibians gain a little bit of a leg up by not having to compete with so many fish. So like a lot of things in the natural world, there are trade-offs everywhere you look, but these salamanders and many of the frogs that they live alongside uh, seem to be getting a bit of a leg up when it comes to uh, adapting, at least locally, to these otherwise really challenging conditions. Hmm. For those unaware, I thought it might be useful to share a little more about this issue of acid rain and Algonquin Park lakes. In the 1970s, before catalytic converters on cars and the U.S. Clean Air Act existed, most North American large cities were encased in smog. This man-made air pollution was, of course, carried by the wind and the air currents far and wide and would descend to the earth in the form of acid rain. At the time, many Algonquin scientists were quite worried about falling acid rain and what it might do to Algonquin lakes and trout fishing. The fear was that Algonquin lakes would be unavoidably transformed into fishless, lifeless vats of mild acid because they couldn't effectively neutralize all of that incoming acid. Even worse was the thought of what would happen when acid-filled snowmelt would rapidly enter the lakes and likely temporarily completely overwhelmed the chemical defenses of the rivers and lakes. Initial research in Algonquin found 15 lakes that were acidic, although later research suggested that some, like Bat Lake, had always been that way, and that acidic lakes weren't necessarily always lifeless. As was noted in The Raven, other research showed that at least 138 lakes in a broad swath running northwest to southeast across the Highway 60 corridor had almost no ability to neutralize acids, which made them extremely sensitive to human negligence. The potential threat caused serious public alarm worldwide, and the resulting international political action involved introducing serious pollution controls, which dramatically improved air quality over the following on decades. In the end, however, Little East End Lake, which is just south of Rain Lake, and Drummer Lake, about three kilometers west of Canoe Lake, were badly damaged. According to an article in The Raven, in the 1990s, researchers from Queen's University and the Ontario Ministry of the Environment initiated a study to reconstruct the pH histories and the fish histories of these two lakes. To do this, they extracted special core samples of mud from the bottom of each lake and examined them for microscopic algae fossils of chrysophytes and diatoms. These are creatures whose hard, silica-containing scales remained in the lake bottom long after their death. Both were easily detected, and most Algonquin Park lakes have 15 or more species of chrysophytes and over 100 kinds of diatoms. As the Raven article went on to say, by measuring the residual radioactivity of a form of lead deposited at these same levels as the various fossils, they could date the times of the formation of each fossil layer in the mud. It also turns out that algae are very sensitive to properties of the water in both which they live, and since we know what kinds of algae currently live in both lakes, Scientists could surmise that if fossils of the same species were found in the mud core deeper down, then we could conclude that they had always been acidic. However, fossil records showed that both lakes had a fossil history with algae typical of more neutral waters, and then a relatively sudden shift to the present more acidic tolerant species. 
Best guesses are that Little East End Lake turned acidic about 1950 and Drummer Lake in the 1970s. Alas, both lakes lost all of their fish. So salamanders can adapt to different types of acidic lakes. Would that adaptation be such that you could take a group from site A and move them into site B and they would survive just as well? Or is it something that happens over a long period of time and that, that you know they would be unique to their own particular environment, their own particular pond, uh, as opposed to any pond that's fishless, as an example? Well, in fact, that idea that you mentioned, that sort of that transplant or the, the reciprocal movement of salamanders and population is, is in fact a study that we have been entertaining to, to do. We, we have to do it very carefully and in a, in a controlled way, of course, as to not risk introducing disease or, or mixing genetics and so on. But yeah, that idea about a highly localized adaptation and, and testing that would be brilliant and I think a really, really interesting way to dig deeper into this idea of of evolutionary change happening on, on localized scales. But as you said as well, it would be happening across many generations. A adaptation by natural selection um, would be would be happening uh, through long periods of time and and so that would have necessitated, of course, that these these animals form sort of distinct populations and those populations are, are regionally isolated. Uh, and so on. But but you're right, that's a brilliant way to, to test what is otherwise, I think, a really intriguing idea about how some of these animals are coping, uh, not only with challenging environments, but as we look into the future, environmental change as well, such as, such as threats and concerns from drying climates and warming climates as well. Hmm. I hope you've enjoyed my discussion with Patrick on the basics of salamander research in Algonquin Park. In my next episode, we're going to delve deeper into what Patrick's research has been telling him about the impacts of climate change on salamanders. He's also going to tell us all about a new Algonquin discovery related to baby salamanders and pitcher plants, of all things. Until next time. <laughs>